हेलो और नमस्ते वेलकम टू ए टिपिकल दिक्कतें अ कॉन्वर्सेशन पॉडकास्ट आई एम योर होस्ट सौम्या एंड इन दिस पॉडकास्ट आई टॉक टू फेलो क्वियर न्यूरोडाइवर्जेंट एंड डिजिबल फोक्स वाई बिकॉज आई वॉन्ट टू दिस पॉडकास्ट इज एन एफर्ट टू बिल्ड सॉलिडारिटी क्वियर इंटीमेसी एंड अ कम्युनिटी टू फील लेस अलोन इन अ वर्ल्ड वेर वी फेस कॉन्स्टेंट इनविजिबलाइजेशन इन दिस एपिसोड आई हैव आयुष्मिता सामल विद मी Ayushmita is a development sector researcher, sexuality educator, MLE consultant and policy analyst. Her expertise lies in the areas of gender and ASRHR and her interests are diversity, equity and inclusion, child rights and mental health. She has worked with organizations like Jamil Poverty Action Lab, International Growth Center and Arman She is currently a research consultant with the Center for Budget and Governance Accountability and works on their gender portfolio. Ayushmita lives with depression, anxiety and PTSD and identifies as queer and neurodivergent. She is a cat parent, loves gardening and cooking. Although according to her, she kills her plants and burns her food. Hey Ayushmita, welcome. Thank you for taking the time out to join me today. Hello Soumya. very very good to be here with you yeah thank you so much and um, just to give some background i came in touch with ayushmita through linkedin uh, it was a post about uh, experiences of those who are living with mental health challenges or are neurodivergent and how they navigate workplaces ayushmita works on a policy brief um so yeah we'll start from there uh, could you tell us more about your experiences uh, especially in workplaces and how you came up with the idea of the policy brief on neurodivergence hmm okay so <laughs> i got diagnosed with uh, everything you just mentioned at the beginning of the podcast in the summer of 2021 i always knew that i had uh, anxiety and ptsd but the depression diagnosis was a surprise to me very honestly although in my defense the psychologist told me that i have lived with depression for maybe around 15 years and when i got diagnosed with it i was about uh, i think less than 24 years old so i didn't really know what the other side of the coin would look like um and i also never really uh, connected real life everyday experiences with my mental illnesses until i was handed that booklet with all of these diagnoses uh, about 2 years ago and uh, even when i did think about how my diagnosis plays into um my life i would always look at my relationships friendships um partners but i would really my work it was only in i think august or september 2021 when i really started to understand that okay this also impacts my work life and um, there are there there are certain things that i can't do or there are certain things that i need to be a certain way at the workplace because of all of this um and that was a period of revelation for about a year until august 2022 this is when uh, i quit one of my jobs and uh, this research fellowship was sort of opening up and uh, i was very interested in knowing that my experiences at the workplace is there is that what other folks who live with mental illnesses and neurodivergence also go through um for example uh, attending early morning meetings for me sometimes can be challenging because 
of my PTSD because uh, I sometimes get nightmares. This was uh, much more uh, commonplace back in 2020, 2021, but has been better since last year. But back then in 2021, early 2022, it was a very common phenomenon for me to wake up sweaty, uh, not being able to sleep uh, because of a nightmare. And attending a meeting the day after such an incident was very difficult. And uh, nobody really understood that why I was coming late, why some days I would just not be on top of things early in the morning. And I didn't know how to really make them understand because I did tell them that, you know, this is my diagnosis, this is what uh, I live with. But somewhat there was a disconnect between the diagnosis and the lived experiences. And hence the idea uh, sort of blossomed, you know, in my head that uh, we really need to look at more people with such experiences and how do workplace policies intersect with uh, rights of persons with disabilities. And uh, that uh, sort of introduced me to you also, Samya. Yeah, yeah. Actually, um, you know, what you mentioned, especially after covid um, I think I have terrible social anxiety because I have been inside the house for so long. And in this space, like this is my safe space. I can control everything, my surroundings. And um, so going out, meeting new people is very difficult for me. I, I need to script my conversations. So the idea of going out for work right now is like too much. So that's why I, I only look for uh, remote roles. Even I like quit my job recently. Um, and um, yeah, I completely resonate with you that it's very difficult. It's not a level playing field and uh, it's not equitable and we need certain accommodations to be able to do that um, because it's uh, it's just difficult to navigate with so many. Like for me, I have terrible um, sensory sensitivities and I get uh, really anxious um, about like, you know, interacting with people. And I might come across as unapproachable and stuff, but it's just, I'm just trying to navigate this terribly neurotypical <laughs> world. So, yeah. Um, you mentioned, you know, being diagnosed with CPTSD. Uh, could you tell us more about how the diagnosis was made, uh, given how accessing a clinical diagnosis is so difficult, uh, so yeah. inaccessible? So how did you navigate the process? Yeah. Um, so I've been taking therapy since 2019. It's been a bunch of years. And uh, my therapist had recommended going to a psychiatrist here in Delhi. Um, and yes, mental health or clinics, mental health support is extremely poorly resourced in our country. But if you, if I were to compare, Delhi is marginally better placed uh, than other cities and quite better placed than tier two cities and towns. For example, from where I am, Ranchi, if I were to compare that with Delhi, Delhi is far better. So I think that was really beneficial for me because I was able to access the kind of healthcare that I needed, but also because I was able to pay for it because I had a steady job, a steady paycheck, um, and the first thing that I did with my paycheck was go to a therapist, like literally. 
um, because I always knew that I need professional help. Um, and uh, she had recommended me to a psychiatrist who put me on medication um, after listening to my case history, my life. And uh, she did not really give me a diagnosis. She just said that, okay, these are some medications that you should take. I don't know how right or wrong that is. Um, I, I am not in a position where I can comment on that. But some of her medication worked and some didn't. For example, the medication that she gave me to help me sleep didn't really work. Um, other medications like some for my depression and anxiety, they were working. But uh, it was also... Uh, a lot of trial and errors because um, the first couple of medication that she put me on would make me extremely tired and lethargic um, and also nauseous sometimes. And then when I told her, she adjusted the dose. So this took a couple of months. And this was in, um, I think, early 2021 or late 2020 when this was happening. Um, a couple of months later, uh, I... I started experiencing um, trigger warning for this part. Um, I started experiencing self-harm ideations. And uh, that is when I went to her again. Um, and although I was still going to her regularly, and that's when she asked me to, you know, take this comprehensive test with the psychologist, which cost about 1500 back then, or maybe 3000 I don't remember. I really, really remember, but that is the change. Um, and it was a long 180 question long questionnaire with true false or sometimes never always type of objective questions and I took some time to fill that out and uh, you know the first time that I took that test test the results didn't even come the psychologist said that the results are she cannot interpret them I have to take it again thankfully I didn't have to pay for it <laughs> but uh, I did have to go through that process like it was six hour long for me sitting down and filling that long 180 question uh booklet twice and that is when the diagnosis came in and i remember uh, i knew that the report was available with the with the doctor with the psychiatrist and uh, i was texting her i was texting her receptionist said hey please send me my reports i need to see it i don't i i, I want to know what it says but they will not listening they were not ready to give it to me they said that you know you come down here and then we do it and that caused a lot of anxiety um and they were uh well reasoned to do that because uh these are difficult diagnosis these are difficult things to come to terms with so their fear was what if i don't take it well was it what if i look at the word depression or ptsd or anxiety and completely flip and do something because i was feeling uh experiencing suicidal ideation during this period of time um and i remember my psychiatrist telling me that you know look at all of these this diagnosis as a source of empowerment because now you know what this is and that is so much better than not knowing and back then i didn't really believe her uh but now i think i do the fact that i know what it is what these things are that I live with has definitely made me feel more empowered and has definitely made me feel seen more importantly. And I can stand up and ask for my rights if they are not uh, being met. And I do have that diagnosis to thank. And this is completely my case. For a lot of people, 
this a diagnosis of this kind may not work uh, for example in terms of my neurodivergence the fact that I, I identify as neurodivergent does not really coincide with my diagnosis so there definitely there is a gap but this diagnosis has also made me feel quite empowered yeah it definitely makes sense and uh, it's the opposite for me you know um like i come from bhubaneswar so the mental health landscape is even like it's it's was over here so i uh, went to uh, a psychiatrist directly uh, when i had no idea about uh, the mental health field and it was in 2016 and uh, i was again trigger warning i was experiencing passive suicidal ideation so he just asked the doctor just asked me a couple of questions and uh, told me like you know i have depression and anxiety and gave me pills for that and sleeping pills because i had trouble sleeping and before that i was going to a neuro specialist and i was experiencing migraines and again sensory issues so i was taking migraine pills as well so this is how it was i didn't even know like um procedure exists right to get a proper diagnosis and everything and uh, it it has taken me years to actually read up research connect with other people and now like i have reached a point where i'm like you know just like my gender sexuality nobody has uh, i mean i just don't feel it right uh, like a doctor would see me for a couple of hours and they get to decide what's it with my neurology right so um that's why i don't use the quote and quote medical terms but i say i'm neurodivergent uh, yeah and uh, therapy actually helped me to navigate that because initially my question was should i go for a diagnosis should i not i don't know because i was so scared of the mental health landscape but uh, yeah so it's it's like you know there are some commonalities there are also differences and this difference way of feeling empowered um you know uh, label or no label um so yeah um how has your experience been with mental health care professionals um what challenges have you encountered and uh, how do you continue to you know uh, navigate them especially when we know the system can be like flawed um, you know because the research that exists um the demographic is like very narrow and many of the demographics are not even considered in the research and that's why the dsm or the icd they are limiting right so um how has your experience been like i think my experience has been conflicted i think that is the right word to describe that because uh, for one um my first therapist who did recommend uh the psychiatrist to me the one that i just spoke about um she was not really helping and this is something that i realized after couple of years i started in 2019 and uh, it was in 2021 after two years of being with her that I, is when i realized that her approach is not working for me and uh, i had come across another therapist through the covid 19 volunteer database um like I, i'm sure a lot of people know that uh, there was an extensive network of volunteers working across cities and towns in india during the second covid-19 wave in 2021 um that is how i met her that is how we first interacted because she was giving free mental health services to help people cope with loss and uh, grief 
um so now i have been with her for 2 years and she helps and works for me much more than my previous therapist did um both are good in their own way but it's just something that works and something that doesn't um and that is that has also a lot to do with the kind of trauma i live with the source of my trauma the primary source of my trauma um uh, is something that i directly encounter uh with my current therapist which has been extremely helpful uh weirdly <laughs> but yeah that is the case with me um but having said that my current therapist and my psychiatrist although i do not go to my psychiatrist anymore i, I am not on any medication right now for about 6 or 7 months they did not agree on approaches uh my ther- current therapist does not agree with the clinical approach of mental health um because of a lot of what you just said and many other things so it has been something to navigate you know the fine line between um what my therapist is saying and what my psychiatrist is saying and finding the fine balance between the two figure out what works best for me is i think the primary challenge that i have faced thankfully i have found therapists and psychiatrists and even the psychologist that i went to for my diagnosis they were all queer affirming people so my bisexuality my queerness did not really affect uh the process but i do know that in many cases that is what happens and that is why a lot of queer people end up not taking uh mental health help um and even in cases where they do it's sometimes extremely poor experience so yeah i think my experience has been goods and bads conflicted sometimes but overall has definitely been beneficial i'm i'm so glad to hear that and that's the reality right that's life it's not black and white and um, yeah you, you rightly said um, i was very scared of going to a mental health professional um, i was having so many meltdowns in uh, um, september last year and i just had to take it but i was so scared because all the queerphobic ideas kind of stem from the dsm homosexuality was a disease there was a time that it was considered a disease and even now asexuality is considered um like you know there are sexual dysfunctions unless the person self identifies as asexual there are sexual dysfunctions that the doctor can you know diagnose diagnose you with um so yeah it's it's a very very scary experience you know as a queer person um and then living with mental health challenges being neurodivergent and accessing mental health care but i also see there's a shift with therapists especially because they are more inclined towards the social model of disability uh, while uh, you know doctors uh, are kind of more uh, they are more uh, they are more associated with the biomedical model but there is some shift that's happening and i'm happy to see that too but yeah this is also a great segue and i wanted to ask you um could you tell us like how being a queer person on the neurodivergent spectrum has impact 
affected your workplace experiences as well as personal relationships especially in this world which is predominantly neuronormative and heteronormative yeah <laughs> this is going to be interesting um at the workplace in particular i have been working in the development sector for all of my career however long that is and um i have primarily worked on gender issues so at least on the face of it most organizations are feminist um and i say that uh, knowing <laughs> that what um uh, things are said on paper and what is the reality are not always the same so yeah that is definitely there um especially in the workplace one thing that i've definitely experienced is this assumption of heterosexuality um as if it's a given that every person just falls in love with the quote unquote opposite sex and you know, ask questions like do i have a boyfriend or when are you getting married or uh, you know I mean engaged um with this connotation that all of this has to be heterosexual is hard it's very hard and queer movement is rampant in our country now but it is also not mainstream so even organizations which work on gender issues on feminist principles take a very cis normative binary approach to their work which is why i till they do not feel very comfortable talking about my like bisexuality at the workplace especially um and similarly i don't feel very comfortable talking about my neurodivergence or my mental illnesses at the workplace very openly unless i think that it is needed it's something that should be out there for example i was talking to an organization couple days back um discussing the possibility of joining them and uh, i asked them if they have a work from home or hybrid policy and i did explain why it's a necessity for me um because of my mental illness but at the same time i did not tell them about my queerness so i think what i do end up sharing is pockets of information based on what is necessary based on what is needed at that point for me to have a more comfortable meaningful engagement with them but having said that i do encounter queer phobic people at the workplace every now and then um microaggressions are always there this um expectation that everyone is heterosexual the, the heteronormativity of all of it is always there um which is when having a colleague who pins a small pride flag on their desk really helps because it what it makes me do is pin my own pride postcard on my desk and that literally happened a couple of weeks back so those little things make me feel seen i think the solidarity of it all ultimately is what keeps everyone going in all kinds of ecosystems and uh, workplaces are no different than that from that in terms of my personal uh, relationships with family friends it is with friends the queer part has been a little easier to navigate 
because again delhi studied in delhi university just the <laughs> so called uh, elite um crowd who have unlearned and relearned stuff but that can also be very performative at times because uh, a lot of people who appear to be um queer friendly or an ally are actually queer phobic and just do not show it so that also happens sometimes but my neurodivergence has been a challenge for sure in my personal life because oh man people just don't understand it's so hard to explain and just the fact that we have to explain it's so difficult to navigate and sometimes it's also very frustrating because you think that you can just google this kind of stuff right but just the labor the emotional labor one has to do to make people understand things is extremely hard to come to terms with you know um i i i struggle to explain my depressive episodes you know i struggle to explain why i don't want to participate in a social event i struggle to explain why i want to do certain things alone um for example i i struggled to explain to my workplace why coming to office every day is not possible for me and i also struggled to explain that to my uh you know people who are close to me that why it's a need for me because you know whenever we look at disability we look at um physical disabilities and while the entire disability community is a marginalized section i think even within the community there is a lot of microaggression a lot of invisibilization of what we broadly call invisible disabilities like neurodivergence mental illnesses psychosocial disabilities etc so even when we talk about making places situations more accommodating for uh, people with disabilities we just do not know that the disability can also look like ADHD it can also look like neurodivergence it can also look like depression ptsd all of those things i remember filling up a form for a leadership uh, program and i was asked if i lived with a disability and i had said yes and then when i was asked to give details i told them that this is this is what i live with and in the interview that actually came up and they said that i we didn't know that all of this counts under disability and i was and i said that you know it does the indian the our law recognizes it but at the same time there are so many things that the law does not recognize there are so many different kinds of disabilities out there which the rpwd act does not recognize what about them those cases like even when i do feel seen even even when i am able to put myself my diagnosis my identity in a box even then it is so hard to find my place in the workplace for example or in relationships you cannot imagine how hard it will be if i didn't know how to sort of define what i live with so yeah that's that's what experiences have brought me to life 
there's a clear parallel you know um, when it comes to queerness and uh, disability and neurodivergence that we have to mask especially if these disabilities are non visible it's non visible to the other person to us it's very much visible like we can we are con- continuously experiencing it so there's a parallel that you have to mask in order to get opportunities in order to get access to spaces you have to mask at the cost of your well-being in order to get these opportunities and you know um, navigate the social world and like you said i have meltdowns i have shutdowns um like if a lot of things are given to me all at once um, i have panic attacks sometimes if even more work is given like um something like comes up it 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 even like uh the senses like it it gets overwhelming and then i have a meltdown so and then after meltdown there's a round of shame uh self doubt um all that stuff and then shut down like why i don't go out of my room why i stay in my room people don't understand that they say that you you know you can try it's not about trying it takes a lot of energy like in the uh, disability movement especially in the autistic movement i uh, self identify as a, an autistic person so in the autistic movement uh, there's this theory called the spoon theory and the fork theory so every day we have a certain number of uh, spoons to do our everyday work be it brushing showering work whatever and when more things come up you know and they take up extra spoons so we are left with fewer spoons um and again we have sleep difficulties and stuff so the next day we you know we start our day with even less number of spoons and then when the folks come in like you know extra work or you know uh unexpected stuff so they um the folks are like kind of what uh, pinching or like uh, uh, sort of like attacking right um, our senses and that takes up even more spoons so ultimately we are just living with trying to survive this world with lesser and lesser number of spoons so that's why it's very difficult this is the uh, analogy that i used to usually explain it to people that why i feel so tired and uh, depleted uh, but yeah like there's a clear um, parallel between queerness and uh, um these non visible disabilities uh because the idea like when you say disability the first thought that comes to people's mind is like a wheelchair user or someone with a crutch so yeah that needs to change um could you tell us um a bit more about uh, like the law aspect like i am like i have no idea about it so what are the things that are covered under our law uh when it comes to disabilities can you tell us a bit more about that mm, so a lot more than what we think is covered um but having said that i don't have the expertise on all of them what i do know is that a lot of the things that we talk about in the mental health discourse is included in the law um the rwd act has a list of 21 disabilities which it recognizes and uh, mental illnesses are a part of them it's a very broad categorization a very broad definition but yes what the law does tell us uh, has for the community is this uh, clause around reasonable accommodation which essentially means that places like workplace airports 
railway stations hospitals need to be designed in a way that uh, people persons with disability can also find them accessible now this means both having ramps elevators um people to assist persons with disability it also means not designing our cities in a way that it impacts people with psychosocial disabilities for example for some people some people um loud noise bright lights can be triggering um so the act does provide reasonable accommodation as a clause to navigate that uh reasonable accommodation can also be adopted in the workplace in fact one of the key aspects of my pro- of my research project is to understand how reasonable accommodation can be extended to people at the workplace who live with mental illnesses and neurodivergence what could it mean could it mean remote work could it mean having cubicles and cabins instead of a common area of work could it mean no questions asked leaves could it mean hybrid work what could it mean um for me for example um asking for hybrid mode of work wanting to go to office maybe only two to three times a week and not for five days is me asking for reasonable accommodation and that is something that the law equips me with unfortunately in most places this either not known or not incorporated in the organization policies because even when we look at diversity equity uh and inclusion we only look at it from this male female binary or if we go a little beyond that we look at maybe caste diversities in india we don't even look at gender minorities queer people people who don't identify as heterosexual we don't look at dis- persons with disabilities within disabilities we do not look at people with psychosocial disabilities mental illnesses neurodivergence the term disabled persons with disability begins and ends with physical disability even in the places where it is talked about and even those places are very few in number uh even though the law has principles uh set out for us it's very it's a very sorry state of affairs where most of it is not really incorporated across ecosystem yeah and uh, speaking of you know psychosocial disabilities like um when i was struggling with stuff i had like one breakdown when i was in 11th 12th grade i think this was 2012 or something um i couldn't write i don't know for what reason even the doctors couldn't explain it but i couldn't write and i had to you know drop that year um so that is a psychosocial disability but there's like no understanding of uh, you know like the, there's no medical uh, what explanation for these things and it's difficult to understand and it took me years like um, to understand okay this is a psychosocial disability like the um, psychological aspects affect um, us you know even physically so that took uh, time to understand and thank you about you know sharing the uh, information about laws because i will go and read up more um because yeah even this reasonable accommodation it's very subjective right because no 
individual person needs the same accommodations you, you can't put these things into paper because everybody has different needs and even the needs fluctuate like in the same single day the same week the needs can fluctuate so how do we uh, you know make it equitable for people like that uh, people like us like you said bright lights um loud noises i have to go with my headphones i have to um you know get tinted glasses and stuff or move away from bright lights in order to um you know access that space or you know access some opportunity so how do you even begin this conversation uh, with organizations even the most feminist organizations because there is a lack of resources and ultimately we are still functioning within a you know capitalist system so how do you even begin this conversation with um, uh, them um, do you have any experience with this do you have any ideas uh, what are your thoughts i think at least now in 2023 february when the recording is happening it has to be very individual approach because unfortunately we don't have that kind of movement building where we are asking for reasonable accommodation for every person with disability because that is exactly how bad things are you know when when you ask people to come to office 5 days a week um 9 to 5 or 10 to 6 11 to 7 nobody realizes that it is ableist and i think that is the saddest part nobody realizes that it is ableist and i kid you not even feminist organizations which work on issues like this which take a holistic policy approach and will be working on things related to persons with disabilities even for them things are so mainstream you know um if if for example in my experience If a if if an organization is working with persons with disability, they look at persons with physical disabilities, their education, uh, making sure that they have assistive devices, and all of that is extremely important. I am not disqualifying that one bit. Definition doesn't expand; it doesn't go beyond it, and it just takes one simple exercise of reading up on those twenty-one recognized disabilities by the law to make things better. but organizations don't do that which is why in my experience it has always been individual pocketed small uh, efforts and approaches by different people and in many cases most cases they're not it doesn't work out and that is the sorry state of affairs that i was talking about earlier in most organizations if one person was to ask for remote work it will be declined on the basis of organization wide policies unless you are somebody who is extremely important to organization to an organization which unfortunately in our country most people are not given the quantum of population that we have uh, in india and just the number of people who are fighting for a single job so the quality of life is extremely poor and this is across sectors across ecosystem uh, the price the value that we associate with human resource in our country is very poor which is why you are dispensable if you are somebody who asks for remote work options they will look for somebody who will not and probably work for a lesser pay than you which is why it's it's very hard to navigate situations like this first you have to make yourself indispensable 
in order to even ask for those things you have to sell yourself you have to literally put a price tag on yourself in this capitalist scenario that this is what i'm bringing to your organization and this is what i need from you in return which is reasonable accommodation and in many cases it's it, it's not something that we end up getting right now which is why the effort has to be sustained there needs to be a movement around it there needs to be a advocacy and campaign around it that we need leaders to take this to the mainstream and talk about it more and more because and i view it as something like the period leave policy that a lot of organizations are doing right now and that took a lot of discourse a lot of communication a lot of you know advocates social workers feminist groups coming up talking about their personal experiences asking for it that is how some organizations are now providing menstrual leaves to their employees this is something that needs to happen for reasonable accommodation at the workplace as well with the thought that it is broad it is it will look different and it needs a certain mind shift change to work and right now in my experience all of it is happening at a very individual level one person asking for things that they need rather than an entire movement moving around it yeah and then like you said no um if um like it's a hypothetical situation in the system that we are working in if there's a disabled person and there's a able bodied person the preference will always be given to the able bodied person because i i move in crypt time right i move in crypt space and time and i need um that space in order to function that is the accommodation that i need to make things equitable for me and given that the whole system is kind of entrenched in ableism like these are institutional things right systems just like patriarchy so it's very difficult to come out of it and ultimately like some other candidate will be given more preference so this is something that really angers me um you know even no matter what um organizations say like they are equal opportunity providers and everything um like if i have a meltdown and i'm unable to do something it will ultimately come and you know bite me um later on um and this is something that um happens all the time right like um that's how the system is so yeah that that really is something which um, angers me and um, you also mentioned that you know it's very uh, binary right um like people still talk about like uh, about manels um and then it's very like man versus woman kind of thing but there are queer people there are queer and disabled people so where are these voices from the margins and uh, that something comes to my mind like you work in the asr hr space right so how is it um, how has it been with like for you um, especially when it comes to these multiple marginalizations um, how is it given like you know how do people talk about it uh, in the asr hr space i think even if you look at the asr hr space it's a very broad term to use um, it's a very broad uh, picture to look at because within asr there is gender based violence there's menstrual health there's mental health 
their abortion rights there's so much but talking specifically about the areas that i have worked on for example within maternal child health within family planning we don't look at religious minorities their beliefs their practices and how that translates into isarage practices we we are absolutely ignoring isarage we are absolutely ignoring menstrual health for example um and the pandemic was a very good example of that there was nobody really understood that if if you put people in a house lock it in the lockdown scenario gender based violence will increase nobody realized that it's as a policy makers haven't been told for all these years that gender based violence happens at homes within domestic spaces they apparently didn't know that um there's so little policy um effort going into that area um we stopped india stopped manufacturing sanitary naps napkins for the first 7 days during the lockdown in 2020 it's always an afterthought you know it's always an afterthought during disasters in floods in many cases period sanitary napkins are not given as a part of the relief kit relief kit has rice dal whatever it doesn't have a sanitary napkin and that is something that actually does happen it used to happen in assam it has stopped now um but it take it took change makers it took advocates fighting for it to change which is why i say that it is only the afterthought we don't even know how access to abortion has been impacted by the pandemic we don't know how many women how many pregnant people were not able to access abortion care in our country because of the lockdown we do not even know those things and we and we don't even go towards marginalized castes marginalized classes genders or uh, religious minorities we don't even think about it it's such a surface level understanding of hrh issues and practices in our in, in our country female genital mutilation is till date not something that we talk about but it still it does happen in our country and that is also a part of hrh so i think in the area where i work hrh is something that india is lagging behind extremely because our its understanding of hrh is limited to maternal child health which is something that has definitely improved over the last few years but there is nothing happening beyond that you know um india has so many people who get cervical cancer every year die from it and now we have a uh, a vaccine being developed but there is so little there is abs- actually none public expenditure on hpv vaccine uh, at the union level only at the state level where some states are providing free vaccines to teenagers for hpv um cervical cancer screening data is so poor if you look at the nfhs 5 data which is a national family and health survey 5 of 2019 20 cervical cancer screening rates across states are extremely poor it's about it ranges anywhere between 0 to 2% and we we have people dying of these things every year and within these categories we don't even think about queer people gender minority people marginalized castes 
data is extremely scarce and the data that is available on all of these issues in our country is extremely poor which is why most of these problems are not even something that we really understand according to me yeah i mean uh, i don't think there's gender segregated or you know data for disabled people um, like is it there like i don't know do you know if it's there i don't think so no i i right we do we have a very poor data collection on uh, persons with disability i think even the number of people who live with disability is something that is contested across sectors in our country because it's 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 a, it's in terrible shape yeah exactly like and even then it's like mostly always talked when it comes to disability it's always physical disability right so that's something like really um i don't know it just bothers me and whenever uh, i talk about this people are quick to say that okay hey improvement is happening but no there are so many areas that we are not looking at matlab thoda thoda nahi chalega we need all of these things i need all of these things so what can we do to achieve that so that's something that really angers me um to be very honest um i wanted to ask you one last question you know you have shared so much um about your experiences like personally at workplace so the, these topics are sensitive and then we also live with these things so long term exposure to trauma kind of like alters our brain chemistry uh, since diagnosis what has changed in the context of uh, your personal relationships or how you navigate work so how has it been different for you i think what my diagnosis diagnosis has done for me at work has uh, made me more cognizant of what are the different challenges that i face and i might face which is why i try to keep communication channels extremely open and uh, devoid of uh you know i i i try to not keep them in the abstract i think let's put put it that way i try to tell people that listen this is what is up if there's something happening i just call them up and i tell them very honestly that listen this is a bad day and all of this has happened in many cases it works out in many cases they understand they see where i'm coming from where the issue is coming from they understand in some cases they don't and that is when i know that this is not the kind of organization people that i want to work with so it has definitely narrowed the pool for me because if an organization for example is not budging on the time for an interview if they just tell you that hey the interview is tomorrow at 12 pm and you tell them that you have a prior commitment and they are informing you of the interview time only a day in advance and it's not something that you will be able to do and they are not accommodating of that you know that that's not the kind of organization you will be you will be comfortable working with that's going to be detrimental for your mental health and that is something that i have begun to realize in the last couple of years since my diagnosis in terms of relationships it has been hard it has definitely been hard because things are not so clinical in our relationships something that can be done at the workplace to an extent although i take my work too personally but relationships by definition are emotional there are a lot of feelings associated with it not only yours so it has definitely been a challenge because you don't know where to talk about it how to talk about it whom to tell you that 
tell about all of this. Um, this one time when I had told a couple of my cousins about my mental illnesses, it had backfired. Because the entire episode sort of spread into my entire family like wildfire, and people started recommending my mother to do some sort of puja with red hibiscus flowers, and I'm not exaggerating at all. So that made me realize that okay, I cannot talk about this with my family, with my extended family, and I can't, I can't talk about this with my immediate family. Very honestly, so that has definitely been a challenge. Relationships can also be. challenging because for a lot of people who live with the mental illnesses that i live with things are either too positive or too negative which can definitely be a very difficult to navigate position situation in a romantic relationship because things are usually usually not black or white so that took some time to register in my brain um that has definitely been something which was difficult to to navigate um apart from that moods why something is happening why i react to certain situations that i do why things are more a little unbalanced for me emotionally sometimes are all things which are hard to, to explain in relationships They still are, and uh, I think these are things that need a lot of work, a lot of effort, and it takes real intention to navigate these situations, especially when it's something that is happening to a loved one and not to yourself. Because uh, if I live in a body Which is disabled in any manner, physically, emotionally, psychologically, whatever. That's the reality that I live with, and I have to navigate that situation. Come what may. But that is not the case with other people. They always have the option to not want to deal with it. In that case, it's it can be challenging because yes, I have had um, partners. Sort of uh, cut ties with me because of my mental illness that has happened in the past. So I wouldn't say that it's an easy situation to be in. But again, I think the one philosophy which works both in personal relationships and at the workplace as well is that if they are not sticking around, if they are not understanding things and protesting against your needs, then that's not a situation that. Person deserves to be in. I deserve better. Everyone in my position deserves better. So yeah, that's that's what the overall experience has looked like. That's something that took time for me to you know accept. Like even if the brain understands, it's very difficult to explain it to your heart, right? So that's something that I have. come to expect like there are needs that i can't compromise with because they are my needs i need those things to function to survive so communication intentional communication and knowing that you know we are on the same team and not against each other we are not trying to prove someone is right someone is wrong that kind of intentionality and uh, honesty is required for me in order to be In in order to function in this world, basically, because it's very difficult with communication, uh, 
there are so many subtexts, hidden social cues when it comes to navigating the neurotypical world. And that doesn't make sense to me. Like I'll take literal, you know, I'll take you literally whatever you say, your words. But then people sometimes, like most of the times they don't say what they mean or like, you know, um, they have some other intentions and it's just not clear to me. So it ends up being like a disaster for me in the end. So yeah, that is something, like you said, you know, um, if someone is protesting against my needs, then I don't need to be in that space. Um, I deserve better. Everyone deserves better. So yeah, um, thank you for that. Um, this was like an incredibly validating conversation for me. And this is where I started. I wanted to start this podcast, you know, to bring these stories. So people hear it, they hold the space for us to hear these stories and these uncomfortable truths because nobody even like uh thinks about these things um right it's um like who cares like how bright the light is or how loud the noise is or um how loud the lifts sound is all that stuff nobody cares and this is something we live with every single day um how things are inaccessible public spaces and um, just just trying to navigate this able-bodied uh, world, uh, how difficult it is. So thank you, um, Ayushmita, for joining me. Any parting thoughts from your end? Ah, well, not a lot, not a lot. But I would definitely look forward to listening to all the other podcast episodes that you come up with in this area, because this is an area of interest for me. But yeah, if if like you said, like if even a single person has listened to us talk about all of this and it could feel a little more heard, a little more seen, and the thing that there, there is solidarity out there, I think that's what the intention was, at least for me. And that's what's important for me. Yeah, absolutely. Like that's what I started with. Like just one person. Let one person hear our stories. <laughs> thank you again, Ayushmita. Um, thank you to the listeners. If you are hearing this message, you have listened to the entire episode. So thank you for sticking around. If you enjoyed the episode and would like to support it, do consider sharing it with others or giving a shout out on social media. You can listen to Atypical Dikkate on Spotify. And if you want to reach out to me, your host, Soumya, check out the link tree link in the description. See ya.